1: While severe weather prediction continues to improve here in the United States, a nearby neighbor is currently deep into their most comprehensive tornado study ever. As we travel north of the border to our neighbors in Canada, the team at Western University is conducting the Northern Tornado Project, or NTP. This project seeks to have a profound impact on tornado and severe weather prediction across the forecasting community, both nationally and internationally. Today on Weather Geeks, we are joined by two of the project leaders, Western University's Greg Kopp, who is the lead researcher, and David Stills, the executive director of the project. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Right. Let's just dive right in. But before I do that, I want to give a bit more background to the listeners on, on on who you are. Greg, you're the lead researcher on the Northern Tornado Project and a professor in Western University's Department of Civil Engineer Civil and in Environmental Engineering, I should say. And you've chaired uh, committees on wind tunnel testing for buildings and structures, uh, the lead researcher for the Three Little Pigs Project. You can best believe I'm going to ask you what that is a bit later, and then we 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 also have David Sills, the executive director of the project. He's worked for more than 20 years as a severe weather scientist uh, with Environment Canada, which is very similar to the National Weather Service here, uh, and and, and NOAA in, in the Canadian region. He was awarded the CMOS Rube Hornstein Medal in Operational Meteorology and the Jeff Howell Citation of Excellence for Innovation. These are two people that know their stuff. Before I even get into the details of the talk today, David, why don't you tell me how you got into meteorology? Were you one of these people that always did, that were just fascinated as a kid? And uh, just as a warning, Greg, I'm going to ask you the same question too. <laughs> uh,
0: definitely. Uh, I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, which is just across the border from Detroit, and uh, lots of storms coming across that area. It's one of the stormiest places in Canada, actually. And uh, so, yeah, grew up uh, just kind of uh, transfixed with the weather and weather forecasting and watching the, uh, the great meteorologists in the Detroit market, uh, each with their own radars and uh, all the excitement that that brings. And, uh, yeah, uh, one of the things that always fascinated me was there'd be tornadoes that were on the American side. And then when the storms came across to the Canadian side, they would kind of dissipate. And uh, that's that's what I wanted to to look into when I got into research and and it was the influence of the Great Lakes that uh, that caused that difference. So can you you
1: geek out on that for a second? Can you talk to the listeners about what the influence? Because I suspected it was the lakes. But from a weather or meteorological perspective, explain why that happened.
0: Sure. Well, you've got big old Lake Erie sitting there and uh, it produces lake breezes. So this is uh, stable marine air over the lake that moves inland through the day. And it it ends up uh, you know, in in a storm environment when you get a southwesterly flow, uh, you end up with a lake breeze front just to the west of Windsor, kind of over the Detroit area, extending off to the northeast. So when those storms come in from the southwest, they may intensify briefly as they they hit that boundary. And then as soon as they cross into the marine air, they start to dissipate. So there's lots of examples where you've got the big severe weather on the U.S. side, and as soon as it gets into the Windsor side, things begin to fall apart and it doesn't really come back together again until you get away from the lakes. So that that again, it fascinated me and I, I needed to know why. And uh, through my PhD research, that's that's what I focused on. So I uh, got the answer.
1: Very fascinating. Now, Greg, you, we're gonna let you join the club here today. You're on Weather Geeks, but I see that you're in an engineering department, but you're certainly doing weather. I'm, I'm just kidding,
2: by the way. But tell us about <laughs> how you really got into the weather side of your profession. Um, well, it's an interesting question. As you said, I am an engineer. I, um, uh, all my work was on fluid mechanics and doing wind tunnel testing and aerodynamics and that kind of thing. I got a job at Western where uh, we have this group of, of wind engineers and uh, I didn't know anything about that actually before I got the job and uh, somehow I got it. They wanted someone who could do some wind tunnel testing. And uh, as I was working here in the beginning, um the insurance industry came to us and said we're worried about damage to houses and so we developed the three little pigs project uh in collaboration with them and and that was to really look at performance of housing under severe wind once you start thinking about that um, uh, you start realizing you need to go out and look at damage in the field and um, that's actually where i met dave was was some damage surveys about 15 years ago after in the in the years after hurricane katrina um, and uh, and we and we just started from there, so it was um, it was kind of a circuitous route for me. And so this th- there's a natural path there from doing wind tunnel testing to full scale testing of houses to looking at damage to chasing tornadoes i guess (laughs) Um, but that's the road i took and i'm thinking about the three little
1: bigs project and i'm having to kind of sort of go deep into my data memory database here but i certainly remember something about huffing and puffing and blowing your house down and so i guess that's sort of the anchor for how that uh, very innovative name for your project came about
2: yeah that's right it um we were we were applying for a grant we're going to do full-scale testing uh, of houses in a lab under under severe wind load and uh and uh, we had a really technical engineering name for it. And someone senior in the university just said, oh, it's just the three little pigs. And, um, and so we actually went with that. And uh, everyone, everyone kind of gets that huffing and blowing. The big bad wolf, you know, is the wind. And, you know, we travel the world uh, doing our research. And almost every culture I've been to has a story about uh, the big bad wolf. And, uh, and they have some variation of the story. So it resonates really around the world. And uh, and people understand intuitively immediately what we're what we're trying to do with it.
1: All right. Let's now with that intro. Let's talk tornadoes. Now, I think people that listen to Weather Geeks are familiar with Tornado Alley here in the United States. And ironically, there's an emerging area here in the southern United States where I live called Dixie Alley. Is there a Tornado Alley in Canada?
0: There are actually a couple of tornado alleys in Canada, and uh, one of them is kind of sculpted by the Great Lakes. And uh, it's that area between Lake uh, Huron and Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. So it runs basically from Detroit-Windsor up to the Toronto area and then even into Quebec and, uh, and towards Montreal and Quebec City. So it's along the uh, the 401 highway corridor and then into Quebec. and. Yeah, that's in the east, that's our, our big corridor. Some of the biggest tornadoes have happened there uh, up to uh, F4 or EF4. Uh, then there's another corridor out in the, the, uh, the plains or the prairies in, in the central part of Canada. And southern Saskatchewan is actually... The hotspot in Canada for tornado activity and that's an extension of, of the Great Plains uh, maximum that uh, goes up through the United States and it actually extends quite a bit far towards the, the northwest as well up into the Edmonton, Alberta area. So you've got these these two main corridors out in the east and out in the west where much of the activity occurs. And then you've got lesser activity, of course, uh, across uh, a lot of the rest of the country. Um, but one of the reasons we're doing the Northern Tornadoes Project is because we don't exactly know where there are those corridors uh, end or, or how intense they are as far as the frequency because a lot of the population of Canada is is concentrated right along the U.S.-Canada border. Ninety uh, percent of the population is within um, about 100 kilometers or so of the border. So you've got this huge expanse across across the country here, where there's not a lot of population and a lot of uh, the the tornadoes that occur never get reported. Uh, So we really are trying to figure out uh, what the actual occurrence is, what the actual risk is across Canada.
1: And we are talking with David Sills and Greg Kopp of the Northern Tornadoes Project. And this is a partnership between Western University Impact Weather and Environment and, uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada. Uh, and they're looking to understand tornadoes in Canada. I think it's a pretty self-explanatory project. Relative to the United States, I mean, I think the numbers are a bit different in terms of the number of tornadoes you receive. Can you clarify that?
0: Yeah, uh- if, if you look at the actual number of verified tornadoes over the, the last 30-year period we looked at was 1980 to 2009, we get on average about 61 tornadoes per year. So that's obviously far less than, than what's uh, verified in the US. Um, but one of the projects, while I was at Environment Canada, one of the projects that I worked on was uh, trying to get a better idea of tornado-prone areas across Canada, and that was for the building code. And one of the things we did was uh, tried to, to fill in those gaps. As I said, there's these large gaps where the population density is quite low and we wanted to fill in those gaps uh, And in the past. The, the way they've done that is just use population density, but we wanted to try to bring in something, uh, a meteorological parameter that would help us. So we have a really good lightning data set now. And so we decided that uh, lightning represents thunderstorms, and we're assuming that if you have a thunderstorm, you've got a chance of a tornado, so let's use that as a proxy. So we used uh, the lightning data set across Canada, the population density across Canada, and the observations of tornadoes that we did have to try to statistically model uh, the tornado frequency across the country. And it did fill in a lot of those gaps. Uh, we, it, in the areas that are away from population, it, it filled in those, those numbers. And even in areas that we thought we knew uh, where, where things were happening in the southern prairies, uh, it filled in those areas too, to the point where now we know that southern Saskatchewan is the big maximum in Canada, as long as that modeling was correct. And that's one of the reasons we're doing the NTP, is to, to validate that model. But when we did that, that uh, modeling exercise, the number of tornadoes across the country increased from about 60 to about 230. So if that's the case, we're only capturing a small fraction of the actual tornadoes across the country uh, when we when we, to have the operational verification that we do with the damage surveys with Environment Canada and so on. And uh, so we, we really need to, to validate that model and those results and get a better idea. Uh, it, it, are those missing tornadoes actually out there and, uh, and what does that do to the, the picture of risk across the country? It's,
1: it's very interesting that you mentioned lightning. I, I, I'm teaching my satellite meteorology class at, at, at this semester at the University of Georgia, and we were just talking about the, the geostationary lightning mapper that's now flying on the GOES satellite, and I was mentioning something called the two-sigma jump to the students the other day, and that's some research that I've seen in the peer review literature that talks about sort of a two-sigma jump in lightning activity and relationships to tornadic activity. Are, are you familiar with any of this research?
0: Oh, definitely. We actually had a lightning mapping array in the Toronto area for about five years just recently. And that's that's the array that can capture every detail in 3D of every lightning flash. And it's kind of the gold standard in lightning detection. And that's where you can really see these uh, two sigma lightning jumps and try to relate them to uh, the onset of severe weather, including tornado development. So we're we actually are in the process of uh of verifying these lightning jumps that we did detect and whether they're associated with severe weather. Uh, and we, we do have access to that data from the new uh, geostationary lightning mapper, the satellite based lightning mapper. It's just up in Canada, it's a little a little more uh, difficult to, to use that data because the data only goes so far across the country because there's a northern limit to it. And also once you get into the northern edges of that uh, coverage, uh, the, the grid The grid points start getting larger, so we start getting storms that will fit within one grid point. So it gets a little more difficult to pull out details like, uh, you know, the, like you said, the two sigma jump and its relationship to the, the updraft strength of a thunderstorm when all the thunderstorm fits into one grid point. That's not just the sound of that first sip of morning joe.
1: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with two experts from Canada, No Tornadoes. And we're talking about the Northern Tornadoes Project. Greg, I want to come to you. I, I'm curious about the relationship between you and Greg. Uh, I'm sorry, between you and David. How did that come about? Did you all know each other before the Northern Tornadoes Project? Or did, uh, what, what brought you together? What, what are the dynamics of how this uh, relationship came together?
2: Um, well, it goes back about 15 years. So at the beginning of the Three Little Pigs project, as I was talking about earlier, um, we realized we had to do damage surveys to see you know, what was, um, what we were testing in the lab. Were we seeing that in the field with the same kind of failures? And um, I remember very clearly it was uh, 2005, it was the year of Hurricane Katrina, and I went and uh, participated in some damage surveys from for that event, um, which was really quite eye-opening. And um, at that time, I uh, I came back to Canada and we did uh, some TV interviews and I was with Jeff Colson, another meteorologist at Environment Canada. And so we were doing this uh, TV show together and we got to talking afterwards. And he says, well, you know what? We need to do more damage surveys in, in Canada, in southern Ontario where we are. And so we said, yeah, let's start working on that together and that's where I met Dave because Dave had been doing damage surveys forever um already and so we got to know each other there and when you're doing damage surveys you're looking at stuff that breaks so you need uh, an engineering expertise and so we thought it was a good partnership between the meteorologists and and the engineers in that way and so it goes back to 2005 and uh, and Hurricane Katrina of all things
1: very interesting Hurricane Katrina has all types of impacts that extend perhaps beyond what people think I want to stay with you Greg You use, I'm imagining, the same enhanced Fujita scale, the EF scales that we certainly use here in the United States. Can you talk to the listeners about the Fujita slash evolution to the enhanced Fujita scale, why it's enhanced and and why it's valuable and why we need to do the assessment in sort of post-storm fashion?
2: Sure. Well, yeah, Fujita came up with the first scale and he, he, uh, he broke, uh, the wind up into a scale of a range of wind speeds up to, up to the speed of sound. And then he, um, had damage observations from those, uh, tornadoes and tried to estimate wind speeds. And then that's, that's where it fit in and you, and you got the catastrophic damage at, at F5. Um, I guess over over time, engineers had some concerns about some of those those speeds in Fujita's original scale, um, especially the, the, the F5 was reliant on on the performance of wood frame houses under under severe wind, and there was um, some thinking in the engineering community that, that those wind speeds in Fujita's original scale were too high at the upper end that you could actually destroy a wood frame house at a lower speed. And so the Enhanced Fujita Scale came about. That was done, led by Texas Tech University and they had um, uh, some engineers and some meteorologists together and they, and they used their expert opinion and, uh, and updated the scale. They did a few things that were really important. Um, they brought in a whole bunch of new damage indicators that, uh, wasn't in, that weren't in Fujita's original scale. And then they, they categorized the damage by, um, from kind of onset of damage to total destruction, and they called these degrees of damage. And so for each of the damage indicators, we have these degrees of damage. So that's a really useful improvement to the scale. And then they, they really estimated, or if you want to be critical, you say guessed, um, the wind speeds that were associated with that. So the wind speeds that we have in tornadoes um, are, are estimated based on the damage caused and those are our estimates of of the wind speeds based on the damage. So if a tornado passes by and doesn't hit anything, it doesn't get rated. Or in Canada we call it EF zero. In the U.S. Uh, it's EF unknown. Um, but if it hits something, and uh, depending on what it is, it can it can you know the damage can be um, Uh, rated based upon what it hits and so uh, as dave was talking earlier in canada we have these largely unpopulated regions which means there's not a lot of infrastructure there there's a lot of trees in the the prairies there's grasslands and so there's not a lot of things to hit and so it becomes hard to detect tornadoes Um, but that's really how it how it comes about
1: very interesting now i've been in uh, conversations with engineers and meteorologists here in the States. And I understand that there is uh, some more thinking about maybe updating the enhanced scale again, perhaps incorporating real-time radar data or Doppler on wheels. Uh, Is that a real thing? Is there a real possibility that we may see even more augmentations or enhancements to the scale?
2: Yeah, there's actually um, a new, we call it a standards committee. So it's a collaboration between the American Society of Civil Engineers and, and the AMS, the American Meteorological Society, um, to develop a standard which is actually trying to incorporate all of these things. So it will have an update to the enhanced Fujita scale But it's also incorporating um, things like trees and tree fall analysis. And there's some really interesting research being done on that. Um, It incorporates radar data and it it incorporates uh, the idea of forensic engineering of of uh, post event evaluation of what the wind speeds would be using modern engineering tools so there's gonna be a big update of that that committee's in process but they're probably a year or two out from that being all done
1: yeah absolutely well, during my time as president I remember talking with Tim Marshall and some of those folks so I knew some of this was going on so thank you for that update I want to come back to David now because you mentioned earlier that relative to US numbers uh, tornado numbers in Canada are, are less Talk to us about the meteorology of why the U.S. is a bit more tornado prone in general than Canada.
0: Oh, I think it's, it's got a lot to do with latitude. Um, when it comes to mid-June to mid-August, uh, southern Canada is just as active as anywhere in the U.S. And we get the big tornadoes, too. We, we've got uh, uh, F5 or EF5 tornadoes that can happen here, uh, especially across uh, the southern prairies. Uh, big, wide tornadoes—you uh, can get them, you know, two kilometers wide. So I mean, we can get those big tornadoes. It's just that the season is shorter, especially in the the prairies region, and so it just is really active for those those few months. And we definitely saw that this uh, this summer when we were doing our, our, the NTP project across Canada for the first time, how active it got just as you started to get into the, the middle of summer and then it just quickly shuts down. I mean, they're having snowstorms and blizzards out there right now. So it's, it's just that, that short shot of a summer weather that gets up there and uh, you get all this activity and then it shuts right down. Whereas in the US, that lasts quite a bit longer. Uh, in the Eastern part, uh, as I said, in Ontario, Quebec, our season lasts a bit longer, uh, but it's not quite as active in the middle of summer as it is on the prairies. Uh, so our, our, the season there is, is a bit longer, but just the numbers aren't, aren't there uh, as far as uh, compared to the, to the U.S. So, you know, it's if, if and this is a climate change issue, too. If, if the atmosphere does warm as, as anticipated and uh, our season gets longer, then we can certainly expect to have more uh, thunderstorms and the possibility of more tornadoes as the season is extended both in the springtime and in the fall
1: I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because tornadoes and severe weather is often i mean we, we certainly know that climate change is happening it's real and there's an anthropogenic component but one of the things that there's often confusion about here in the u.s is that you know and you alluded to this earlier because of better observations uh, radar that have come along in the last three uh, 30 years i should say and other techniques uh Uh, we've been able to detect tornadoes that perhaps were missed 40 years ago. And so uh, there's been an uptick in sort of statistics. And so people sort of erroneously link that to climate change. Much of the scientific literature is a bit inconclusive on relationships between climate change and tornadic activity. uh, And we understand that those observational uh, improvements are leading to more tornadoes being observed. And it sounds like that's the case in uh, in Canada as well. But I I like the fact that you did discuss some plausibility in terms of tornado environment environments and climate uh, change, which I know that people like uh, Dr. Victor Gensini and others have published on in the scientific literature. Is, is that, that what you observe in Canada as well, this sort of misreading of some, some of the tornado trends?
0: Well, that's right. And, and there is some concern in the, uh, in the forecasting community, I guess, that people are getting the impression that there are more and more tornadoes happening because we're finding more. Uh, even before we started really looking hard with NTP and, and projects before that, Uh, Just the rise of consumer electronics and people with their cell phones and and we're just getting so much more data and with social media as well We're just getting so many more reports of tornadoes now than we used to So the numbers are going up and this is particularly true for the weaker tornadoes that there's a lot more EF0, EF1 tornadoes that that now that we've had in the past So when we want to look at trends long-term trends We really have to kind of filter those out and start looking at maybe EF2s and above and how those have changed over time because we, we, te- we think that those tend not to get missed uh, in the historical uh, records. Uh, it's, it's possible that they do, and we're actually finding with NTP that we're finding some EF2s in the forest that we never knew about. But in populated areas, uh, it, you know, th- those stronger tornadoes, uh, the, the record is probably pretty good. Uh, we're just seeing a heck of a lot more EF0s and EF1s than we used to because of all these different factors, these anthropogenic factors that have been introduced into the tornado record.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something we, we sort of experience here. I, you mentioned data, and there's something that caught my eye that perhaps Greg or David, uh, I'll, I'll come to you initially, Greg. Uh, you also have an open data site where people can report a tornado in the area. Uh, how does that work and how does it uh, impact the research in the uh, Northern Tornadoes Project?
2: yeah, you're right. we um, well, one of our mandates is to have everything that we do be public. and so we we're both uh, Dave and I are firm believers in open science, and so so that's a natural part. and our library has been great at uh, building a website and and permanent archiving system for us. Um, our mandate also is to try to capture every single tornado in the country and uh, and so that's a that's a challenging task for what's a, a relatively small group here. And so, getting the public engaged with with the process um, is something that we're we're trying actively to do. Canadians are obsessed with weather, anyways, so, so uh, we think it's quite a natural <laughs> thing. <laughs> and um, and with social media, um, uh, you know, we've developed our own hashtags for Twitter, and those are starting to take off a little bit. and uh, And we have the reporting on the website, so all of that I think is going to help us. Uh, do a better job of capturing data for all of these events. Go ahead and give us the uh, social media and, and, and websites. Uh, the website's uwo.ca slash NTP. So very simple. And uh, in, in, in Canada, we've been using um, um, hashtags uh, for for storms. So we live in Ontario. So it would be uh, hashtag onstorm, O-N-S-T-O-R-M. And uh, so we we decided to use something similar. So if you want to report a tornado to us in Ontario, it's O N N T P, and uh, and so we have that in every region. If there's a, if there's one in Saskatchewan, it's S K N T P, and so um, we actually have. It surprised us. We have people that are are actually advocating for us and and actively using uh, the hashtags and and we're seeing some growth in the use of that. So that's kind of an exciting part of it. And and, and getting the community engaged with it, just like we had the Three Little Pigs Project, people can understand that. Um, And getting the community engaged with this too also. I think eventually we'll help with, um, well, we'll get better data, but also it helps uh, with community safety and things like that too in these severe weather events.
1: We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Greg Kopp, who's the lead researcher in the Northern Tornadoes Project, and David Stills, the executive director of the project. So, uh, we have a meteorologist and we have an engineer, and we're talking tornadoes north of the border, at least north of our border, south of your border, I guess, in terms of where we are located. (laughs) What are some of the myths, David? about tornadoes that you hear in Canada. I wonder if they're the same ones that we hear in the United States. Are there any myths that come to mind that you often hear about tornadoes?
0: Well, yeah, there's a number of them. And, and the biggest one is that, oh, well, tornadoes don't happen here. <laughs> right. Uh, there's, there's a large uh, percentage of the population uh, in Canada just, that just thinks that tornadoes are an American problem and uh, are really surprised when it happens in their backyard. Uh, so, so that, I mean, that's one of the myths we'd like to dispel with uh, with the work we're doing with NTP is, uh, hey, tornadoes can happen anywhere in this country. In fact, we did a damage survey for a, a tornado up in Northwest Territories this year. That was their first time north of 60 degrees latitude doing wow. a damage survey. So, it, it, And we know that they happen up there, too. This is the first time we've actually had the evidence to go up there and check it out and run the drone and, and that kind of stuff up there. But yeah, I mean, it, that's that's the main myth, I think, is that you know tornadoes don't happen here. Uh, another another myth, uh, and I know this is prevalent in the U.S., is that uh, tornadoes don't hit cities. Right. Uh, they, they somehow magically disappear as they're entering cities. And we had an event last year that actually uh, there was a tornado outbreak in and around the nation's capital in Ottawa. And that rattled a lot of people because there it was uh, F- EF2, EF3 tornadoes right through uh, I mean, it was in view of the parliament, parliament buildings in Ottawa, and I think a lot of the senior managers in Environment Canada, maybe even some of the the political actors uh, in Ottawa, saw this tornado go by, and uh, you know there, it was something like 300 million dollars in damage. Thankfully, only a few injuries and no fatalities. But I think it, it woke a lot of people up to the fact that that cities are not immune, and in fact, they're pretty vulnerable. Uh, the 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 electrical transmission network in the in Ottawa was down for days. Uh, When this tornado went through so it really opened people's eyes uh, to the possibilities that hey, you know cities are are Vulnerable to
1: yeah, we we we're here in the Atlanta area with the weather channel And we certainly have our own experience with an ef2 level tornado that sort of plowed through downtown Atlanta in 2008 so uh, I I think that was sort of an example and a wake-up call even for people here, too and I've seen research by the likes of Walker at Ashley and some of the folks at Northern Illinois that talk about this expanding bullseye, which is as cities and sort of uh, urbanized spaces, uh, suburbanized spaces expand, uh, that's, there's likely to be more damage and, and impact. And so, Greg, that takes me to you because you specialize in wind engineering and damage mitigation with the Northern Tornadoes Project. What are some of the advancements or best practices that you've come up with in the last couple of years that, uh, since you've been involved in this project or things that you've seen that are like, okay, that's a, a step forward?
2: Um, well, I- you know, with um, a lot of the technology was developed uh, in the hurricane coasts uh, for for the U.S. Um, so South Florida has a really um, really good building code, and uh, and and there's a lot of technology um, to mitigate the damage. And we're we're we've been trying the same thing with Canadian construction. Canadian stru- construction is quite different. We have a very um, very strong uh, insulation requirements so that our houses are well, the, the the codes are heading towards net zero. And um, and so there's very advanced construction there, but they're not built to be resilient. And so we've been taking the things that we've been doing in the lab and uh, and working with builders to try to get them to implement some of these technologies. Uh, I'm really excited. We had a project uh, in a neighboring community now where a group of four or five builders are coming together and they're going to use, um, and they're building a tornado resilient community um, for for up to EF2 and uh and they're uh trying some of the things that that we've been doing here um more oklahoma of course uh implemented a change in their building code to make um make their houses much more resilient to gain up to an ef2 level and so some of those measures are very similar although our housing practice our building practice is a bit different in canada and so we didn't have to do actually as many things here and so um we're learning how to do that and getting the costs and uh we're also working um, with with changing climate. Our governments requiring municipalities to develop emergency plans, and some communities are concerned about tornadoes. So we've actually we have a pre-standard um, for um, extreme wind, uh, design for tornado resilient design. That's actually in, in the public now, and uh, and is going towards uh, becoming a, a standard. Um, uh, for, for the building code. And so there's been quite a bit of development here in Canada in that regard.
1: Yeah, one, one thing that you said just prompts a question, just kind of a common sense question, and I'm, I'm interested in either of your responses or both of your responses. You you mentioned that we're seeing sort of better standards now in places like Moore, Oklahoma, which has been repeatedly hit, or even places in Canada. Uh, wh- we, we've we known where the vulnerable geographic locations are for tornadoes for some time why are we just now seeing some of these sort of standards and policies in terms of of building codes i mean i, I went to school at florida state university and you know i know that one of my professors was very involved in informing about sort of housing codes and standards for hurricanes because florida is going to get hit with hurricanes um so why why are we just now seeing this sort of emphasis or is it just a, a cost issue
2: well, the losses for for tornadoes are about the same order of magnitude as as for hurricanes, averaged year over year. So, um, you're absolutely right. That's a it's an important. It's a, it's a good question. I think um, the the building code and and design practice focuses on individual buildings. So, um, if you're the likelihood of your particular house being hit by a tornado is is very small. It's exceedingly small. So. Financially, it may not make sense for you to actually worry about that. Hurricanes have a much broader kind of impact, and, and so if you're in those areas, the probability of being hit become much higher. What I think we're starting to see is a realization there's a community aspect. So when tornadoes hit a community, the probability of a, a community being hit in a given year isn't negligibly small. It's, it's, much, it's much larger, and, and then the effects can be devastating. And one of the big issues with uh, with tornadoes is is the debris, the debris field, the windborne debris, and um, right, you see, um, you know, moonscapes after after a big tornado, and uh, and a lot of that is caused by debris hitting the trees and knocking all the leaves and the branches off, and uh, and so that's a big player in that. If you can hold the houses together, if you can hold the roofing components in, and uh, you can mitigate a lot of that debris field, um, I think there's a growing realization that just building one building uh, to, to, to withstand the tornado doesn't make sense. But if you do it at a community level, you can reduce the overall losses and reduce the overall impacts. Because if your community is hit by a tornado, you're going to be out of your house. Your kids aren't going to be able to go to school for a year or more. And, uh, and if we can mitigate those things, it becomes important. I heard a stat the other day. I think the US has something like 30 schools a year destroyed by uh, tornadoes, and if you stop and think about it, that is an impact on a lot of a lot of kids' lives.
1: Wow, I, I hadn't heard that statistic. That's actually uh, that that made me literally say wow when you said that. By the way, do you all have the Have you upgraded your radars as well to the dual polarization radars? When you, as you were talking about debris, I was just thinking about the debris balls that we see and things like the correlation coefficient and whatnot. But uh, are your uh, radars uh, dual pole as well?
0: Um, there were a couple dual pole radars that were. You, uh, operated on an experimental basis in southern Ontario uh, for the last 10 years or so, but now we've moved into uh, a new phase in in radar in Canada where we're implementing uh, dual-pole Dopplers at S-band across the entire country. And uh, the idea is all of our radars, there's 32 of them, will be upgraded to that technology by 2023. Uh, we're I think we're about nine or ten radars in at this point. And uh, yeah, the difference is amazing when you can start looking at that dual pole data. And and the quality going from C band, which was our old network, to S band is also really impressive as well. Yeah, well, and,
1: and let me and let me just for the listeners here because we we do like to geek out on this podcast. But a C band system and an S band system, I believe a C band is around five centimeter wavelength, and the S band is around ten centimeter. Uh, the the longer wavelength radars extend the coverage in terms of distance. And for that term dual polarization, that you're talking about in Doppler. You heard a couple of technical terms. Doppler radars, I think most people are familiar with. It. If you've been stopped by the the police for speeding um, it's using doppler principles uh, changes in frequency to determine velocity so we can do that with uh, radar too to see things moving the raindrops moving in the clouds and whatnot and then this dual polar metric or dual polarization that you hear us talking about um, the radar actually can transmit its waves at sort of what we call horizontal and vertical polarization technical terms don't worry about it Uh, google it a little bit but it allows us to see the orientation of the drops the 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 scatterers in the radar and can help us determine things like how large the raindrops are what kind of particles we're seeing uh, whether there's a debris ball from a tornado so just wanted to make sure i got that out there now in this last couple of minutes uh, for both of you what are the aspirations going forward for the northern tornadoes project Uh, where do you see the project ending up in a few years
2: Um, Well, we have, I'm going to say our goal is to capture all the tornado data that we can for every tornado uh, in the country. Um, When we started out, I'd say that's an aspirational goal. So we want to get better and better at that. It was relatively quiet year this year. So we think we got everything. But um, if we had a busy year um, with our staffing levels, it'll be a challenge. So so we want to get better at doing that. We're also looking at, um, at at getting into things like now casting and developing tools for that. Dave mentioned earlier um, the Lightning Network Array. We have that now at, at Western as part of the project. And uh, we have one of the old experimental radars, and so we're working towards um, building that out. But Dave can t- comment more on that. But we want to really build tools that will help uh, the help the forecasters get better at uh, at their forecasting tasks. Dave, you want to add anything?
0: <clears throat> well, just that uh, the technology that we're using to do this project is really changing as well. Uh, we hadn't mentioned that up to this point, but um, I mean, we're we're for instance, this year with drones, um, we we're now it's now standard practice to run a drone over any anything that uh, uh, we're investigating. And there's even software now that uh, it'll uh, run a drone pattern over the entire track length. It takes several hours and several batteries to do that. Uh, but it comes back with an aerial image that's geo-referenced at, in 2.5 centimeter resolution. Uh, so th- this is really incredible data sets that we're, we're getting with these uh with these events and in in the cases where we can't run a drone in the the kind of the deep dark forests of Canada, we're actually running aircraft uh, doing uh, aerial sampling over top of these and getting uh, 5 centimeter data. So we're getting data at really unprecedented resolutions as far as Canadian projects looking at uh, tornado damage and even internationally those are really Uh, fine resolutions and generating these kinds of data sets that we can learn more about how to detect uh, tornadoes, both in forests and in croplands and that kind of thing.
1: Well, this is where we have to come to a close. I've really enjoyed this discussion, and hopefully the Weather Geeks listeners have a a, a better appreciation for tornadoes in Canada, but also just tornadoes and the process of damage assessment and the Fujita scale. You you all have dropped quite a bit of geekable knowledge on the Weather Geeks podcast. I want to thank you (laughs) both for joining us. Thank you. And and this has been Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, We'll be here the next time. Check us out for a new episode. Go subscribe if you haven't. Have a good one.